2: Law, A system of rules implemented by a government to ensure that the people adhere to the will of the state, by shaping what is good or bad, defining what is right or wrong, and with any infractions judged by a randomly selected jury of their peers, in a trial which is unbiased, impartial and fair. But the law is not infallible, it is only as accurate as the evidence it is presented, so mistakes are made. On the 9th of March 1950, in Pentonville Prison, 24 year old Timothy John Evans, a semi literate and easily led fantasist, was executed having confessed to the murder of his wife and child, a crime he did not commit. With a real culprit in court, posing as the prosecution's chief witness, even though he had already murdered five women, including his own wife, the jury unwittingly let a guilty man walk free. It seemed clear-cut, as from the day of Beryl's murder to the morning of Tim's execution, the whole case was wrapped up in just four months. Three years later, having realised that an innocent man had been executed, the case of Timothy John Evans would send shockwaves through the establishment, rewrite law, and bring an end to the death penalty. But by then, three more women would be murdered. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspective, so what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and I present to you part 7 of the full, true and untold story of The Other Side of 10 Rillington Place. Today, I'm standing on Praed Street, W2, three streets west of the failed assassination attempt of former Iraqi Prime Minister, Abdel al razak Said al-Naif, two streets north of the homes of Catherine Mulcahy and Doris June, the last victims of the infamous Blackout Ripper, and a short dawdle from Paddington Station, where Timothy Evans caught a late-night train to Merthyr Vale, having hastily erased any evidence of his wife's murder and all at the real killer's command. And like most train stations, Paddington is an area synonymous with pubs and prostitution. Where pissed-up losers pump their pint-sized peckers against a disinterested sex worker's derriere. Sad gits and flashing macs pay to have their limp love length tugged at like a bored housewife fishing a soggy noodle out of a stinky sink and where hard-up rent boys receive a mouthful of unwashed manhood from a happily married man who accidentally slipped whilst weeing against a wall. Sadly demolished, one such pub, frequented by prostitutes and punters alike, was the Great Western at 31 Prade Street. A three-storey, brown-brick, corner-facing classic British boozer, with a ceiling slathered with tobacco tar, Carpet sticky with spilt ale, and the air foul with the funk of fifty farts. In a stiflingly small bar, comprising of six bar stools of varying wobble. Four types of beer, warm, wet, thick or strong. Two flavours of crisps, salty or bland. One form of greeting, surly. And a urinal floor, so deep in badly aimed man that wellies were a must. And yet, it was here, sometime during the bleak winter of 1952-53, being unfettered and free, having murdered his wife, the rich Christie would meet Kathleen Maloney, an unfortunate woman who life had forgotten, but whose name would be remembered forever. On the 14th of January 1950, in court one of the old bailey. Timothy John Evans, you have been found guilty of murder. Do you have anything to say before I pass sentence? Looking tiny and frightened, standing alone, Tim said nothing. His simple brain too slow to comprehend his fate, as the judge donned the infamous black cloth. But as the trembling man was led away to the cells, in a last-ditch attempt to clear his name, he shouted these eponymous words which would reverberate across the court and the country for decades to come. Christie done it! I'm telling you, Christie done, done, done it! Tim's cries fell on deaf ears. As across the five-day trial, the credibility and criminal record of John Reginald Halliday Christie had come into question. And having sowed the seeds of doubt over Tim's guilt, The barrister, Mr. Malcolm Morris, had boldly stated, Well, Mr. Christie, I have got to suggest to you that you are responsible for the death of Mrs. Evans and the little girl. If that is not so, that you very much know more about the death than you have said. To which Christie indignantly whispered, That is a lie. Malcolm Morris had got nearer to the truth than anyone else. Reg knew it, Ethel knew it, and Tim's mum knew it. Shortly after sentencing, Thomasina Probert accosted Reg Christie in the hallway of the Old Bailey and screamed at the top of her lungs, MURDERER! MURDERER! And in an ironic twist of fate, the one person who sprung to his defence was Ethel Christie, who shouted, DON'T YOU CALL MY HUSBAND A MURDERER? HE'S A GOOD MAN! Less than two years later, this good man would murder Ethel. Christmas 1952 was a very lonely affair for the recently widowed Reg, with no tree, no tinsel, no family and no presents. Ten Place was deathly quiet, and as a bitter icy wind whipped through the cracked bricks and rattled the loose floorboards, Reg sat alone, supping a hot tea, sniffing into a hanky and sucking on a lozenge from a small tin box of Lewis and Burroughs Gee's Linctus Pastels, having caught a cold. As loneliness crept in, Reg busied himself with daily household chores, like burning rubbish in the back garden, selling off the furniture, pawning Ethel's possessions, washing the floorboards with a strong disinfectant. And sprinkling floral cleaning fluid in front of his bay window to eradicate a fetid pungent aroma which he blamed on dog poo, damp and dirty water. And as Ethel's bloated body slowly rotted underneath his feet, having lied to Lily that her sister's rheumatism was too bad to write her a card so she would recuperate in London over Christmas, on that same day over the short garden wall of 9 and 10 Rillington Place, Reg waved what Rosina Swan thought was a telegram, supposedly from Ethel, which read, "Arrived safely in Sheffield. Love to Rosie. At which Reg laughed, and in a hauntingly dark jibe, he quipped, I will have to choke her off for sending love to you and not me. That Christmas day, feeling sorry for the ageing, ailing man who was too ill to work, too feeble to cook, and too poor to light a fire, in a gesture of kindness, Louisa and John Gregg and their aunt, Rosina Swan, invited this lonely man round to Number 9 Rillington Place, where they drank, sang, and made merry. But as his loneliness grew and his dark urges stirred, having already got away with five murders, and with no one to stop him. Somewhere in London, three more victims awaited Reg Christie. Kathleen Madeline Maloney was born in the industrial port city of Plymouth on the nineteenth of August 1926. Originally from Ireland, her father Daniel scraped by collecting the city's scraps as a rag and bone man, foraging for metal to sell, cloth to sew into clothes, and bits of wood to burn, as mother Lily, older sister Lillian, stepsister Edith, and Kathleen the youngest survived in a hand-to-mouth existence. Raised in a squalid, tumble-down dock worker's cottage at number 112 King Street, with four struggling families squeezed into just two floors, with no electricity, gas or running water, just rats, lice and a leaky roof. Although she grew up in the supposed glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, Kathleen resembled a ragged urchin from a damp Victorian slum, with bare feet, matted hair, dirty skin and an empty belly. And being burdened by a plump round face, bad teeth and a crooked eye, she was mercilessly bullied. In her hard, short, and troubled life, so vague are the details that many remain a mystery. So chaotic was her way of living that her last movements are unknown. And so forgotten would she become that we don't even know on what day she died. But as a ragged and starving child struggling in the dockside slums of Plymouth, for Kathleen Maloney, these would be the best days of her life. In 1931, two years after the economic collapse of the Wall Street crash, which plunged the world into financial meltdown, when Kathleen was only five years old, her father died, and then her mother died. As three young siblings, Kathleen, Ethel and Lillian were briefly taken in by their aunt Emily, who lived just one door away at 110 King Street but as a starving mother herself who struggled to keep the unruly girl on the straight and narrow. Two years later, having been separated from Edith, Lillian and Kathleen were sent to St. Nazareth's on Plymouth-Durnford Street, a strict Catholic orphanage where being cruelly split up from her big sister, she lost contact with Lillian too. She was a lonely, scared eight-year-old, and this would be her life for the next decade. With no family, no friends and no role models, only bellowing priests with scornful eyes, furious nuns with unholy tempers, and older girls with bad habits. Feeling utterly worthless, Kathleen rebelled and was regularly beaten with a cane on the hands, the bottom and the back for minor misdemeanors like smoking, swearing, theft, and fraternizing with boys. But with the beatings being no deterrent to a tough little girl with no hope, having started small, her criminal career had nowhere to go but up. Age 14, with war declared and St. Nazareth's evacuated for fear of being bombed, Kathleen and the other girls were billeted 10 miles away in Elfordley, a grand country club on 223 acres of land in the picturesque Devonshire countryside. Her stay should have given this ragged orphan a brief glimpse at a better life, but with the building having been requisitioned for the war effort, in the spring of 1944 Elfordley would become home Not only to 80 lonely and hormonal girls from the local convent, but in preparation for the D-Day landings, a regiment of the Royal Marines. To Kathleen, it seemed like an easy solution to her persistent problem, as all she had to do was kiss, cuddle and flirt with the over-amorous soldiers, to be blessed with everything she ever wanted, like alcohol, chocolate. attention. But soon, as the shillings were traded for sex, although it seemed like harmless fun, this first foray into the sex trade would lead Kathleen down the path to misery, poverty and death. On the 19th of August 1944, her 18th birthday, having been arrested for fraternizing with a black American GI, Kathleen was sent to the much harsher Convent of the Good Shepherd in nearby Saltash. And although even they couldn't tame her wild ways, just a few months later, as the Plymouth Probation Service transferred her back by train to St. Natharest, Kathleen absconded. With no job, no skills and no money, having hitchhiked the 200 miles to London, and with her only means of support by selling her body on the streets, Kathleen Maloney began a short, hard life as a prostitute. A dangerous profession, where in the Great Western pub at 31 Prade Street, she would pick up all manner of drunk, druggy, pervert, sex pest, and murderer. Except as a deeply moral, honest and teetotal man who had never frequented pubs and never fraternised with prostitutes, there was simply no way that Kathleen and Reg could ever have met. One evening, I went up to Labrador Grove to get some fish and chips. On my way back, a drunken woman demanded a pound from me to take her round the corner. I said, I'm not interested, I'm not like that. I haven't had any intercourse with any women for over two years. She demanded 30 shillings and said she would scream that I had interfered with her if I didn't give it to her. I walked away, but she came right to my door and when I opened it, she forced her way in. The last seven years of Kathleen Maloney's life are a mystery, as being a forgotten woman who had nothing having no will, no known next of kin, and never being listed as missing. From her late teens to her early twenties, the last pieces of her life are picked from a series of shambolic statements by casual acquaintances, extracts from her criminal record, and a few fragments found in an orphanage. On the 19th of January 1945, at Bow Street's Magistrates' Court, Kathleen was found guilty of wandering abroad, Her crime? Being homeless. She was bound over for two years and fined £5, which she couldn't afford. Eight weeks later, being in breach of her probation, having slept in a doorway, she was sentenced to three months in Holloway Prison, where for once she had a bed, hot meals, clean clothes and medical care for her and her unborn baby. But having served her time, she was booted out, back onto the street. Fleeing to the port city of Southampton, where the baby's father, an unnamed Norwegian seaman, was based, Kathleen gave birth to a baby boy called Danny. And trying to be a good mum, she shared a small lodging at 33 Russell Street and started work as a cleaner. But as a hopeless alcoholic... With a coarse tongue, a fierce temper and a history of violence, unable to function unless she was soused in red wine, as she drifted back into sex work, two-year-old Danny was taken into care and over the next seven years, her baby boy would be joined by four more. Trapped in a vicious circle of drink and sex, as her criminal record expanded, her life collapsed. April 45 A public order offence for receiving stolen goods. February 46 One month in prison for lodging in an outhouse in a condition likely to cause infection, having slept in a public toilet. November 48 One month in prison for being drunk and disorderly. April 49 Three months in prison for assaulting a police officer. July 49 One month for indecency. February 50, two months for prostitution. September 50, two months for theft. February 52, one month for drunkenness and obscenity. And December 52, she spent a further 14 days in prison and was fined £2 for being drunk and disorderly. By Christmas 1952, after seven years on the streets, Fourteen and a half months in prison, and as a homeless, penniless alcoholic who was four months pregnant with her sixth child, with cold cramping her hands, hunger growling in her gut, and her shoes sodden as an icy wind blew down Prade Street, 25-year-old Kathleen staggered into the Great Western Pub to pick up a punter. In need of just the basics to survive a single night in a bitter British winter, such as a bed, a bite to eat, and some booze. She didn't care who he was, where they went, or what he wanted. When I opened the door, she forced her way into the kitchen. She was still on about those 30 shillings. I tried to get her out, but she picked up a frying pan and hit me. There was a struggle then she fell back onto the deck chair. I don't remember what happened, but I must have gone haywire. The next thing I remember, she was lying still, with a rope around her neck. Kathleen lived from day to day, hand to mouth and bed to bed, with no home, money or hope, just the clothes on her back, the shoes on her feet and the baby in her belly. Having sex with any man, just so she had a warm bed to sleep. As one of hundreds of prostitutes in the Paddington area, Kathleen, known as Kay or Maloney, picked up punters in the local pubs. The Cider House on Harrow Road, where she washed in the sinks. The Westminster Arms on Prade Street, where she had once worked as a cleaner. The Mitre in Marble Arch, where the landlord paid one of her fines and the king's arms on the Edgware Road, where she met a 20-year-old girl called Maureen Marianne Riggs, an orphan who'd absconded from a convent, served time in prison, worked as a part-time waitress and prostitute, and was known locally as Edgware Road Jackie. And so finding their kindred spirit, Jackie and Kathleen became practically inseparable. On an unspecified date, Sometime in October 1952, two months before Reg was allegedly accosted by a drunken Irish woman while buying fish and chips in Ladbroke Grove, Jackie and Kathleen met a man in the Great Western pub at 31 Prade Street. As a regular customer, the sex worker said he was polite, friendly, paid well and apart from the occasional bout of erectile dysfunction, he was no bother. As an odd little man, who was short, scrawny, balding and bespectacled, wearing a badly crumpled suit, thick-lensed spectacles and false teeth which slipped when he smiled. He didn't look sinister, he looked silly. And as an ex-special constable, commended twice, a war hero, awarded the British War and Victory Medal, and a grieving widower, whose beloved wife of 32 years, to be precise, had recently died. Even though at that point... Ethel wasn't dead. The locals knew him as John and Chris. But I prefer it if he called me Reg. As a good natured drunk who danced badly and sang loudly, Kathleen would talk to anyone, especially if they brought her a drink. So, having splashed out on a scotch for Jackie, a red wine for Kathleen, and half a pint for himself, Reg made them an offer. All the while, his eyes wide, as he continuously licked his lips. Three weeks before Christmas, and one week before Ethel's death, in an unspecified top-floor flat off Marleybone Lane, which had been rigged up like a photography studio, Kathleen and Jackie posed for Reg. Sometimes they were clothed, semi-clad or nude. Sometimes they were seated and spread bent over and open. Sometimes they were alone, together, or posed with Reg. His scrawny white body perched behind Jackie, his penis erect as he pretended to penetrate her from behind. Having dressed, Jackie and Kathleen asked for the 50 shillings each. Roughly £75 today, he had agreed to pay them. But Reg was broke. As the two girls became enraged, spinning a merry tale, he handed them 20 shillings apiece and promised a cut of the profits once the photos had been sold. But the photos were never seen, the girls were never paid, and four weeks later, Kathleen would be dead. Exactly when she was murdered, we may never know. Christie stated he last saw her in October 1952. Jackie, on New Year's Eve 1953, with various sources stating that she was last alive anywhere between the 19th of January, mid to late February, and even as late as early March 1953. But having never been reported as missing, the last reliable sighting of Kathleen Maloney alive is this. On another unspecified date which was either a week, ten days, or at least two weeks after Christmas 1952. A 35-year-old sex worker, separated mother of two, and part-time cleaner of the Red Lion pub, called Catherine Struthers, who went by the alias of Kitty Foley, met Kathleen Maloney in the Westminster Arms Public House at number 11 Parade Street, just a few doors down from the Great Western. At 5.30pm, Reg Christie, a semi-regular customer at the pub, with an easily identifiable look, manner and voice, sat by the fire, laughed with the ladies and brought them both a bottle of Slingo, a very strong Yorkshire beer. To Kitty, it was clear that Kathleen liked Reg, trusted him and pitied the recent widower, who offered her a few shillings, a bed for the night and some of his dead wife's clothes. And although Reg sniffed, being burdened by a winter cold, Kitty had no reason to be suspicious. He seemed like just a sweet old man, who listened politely, talked quietly, and kindly offered them both a menthol sweet from a small box of Lewis and Burroughs G-Linked's pastels, which he kept in his pocket. At roughly 9 or 10pm, with Kathleen having knocked back eight pints of Slingo, Being unsteady on her feet, cheerfully singing, and feeling a tad peckish, Kathleen and Reg left the Westminster Arms and hopped on the number 27 bus to Notting Hill. That was the last confirmed sighting of Kathleen Maloney. So, exactly what happened next is a mystery none of the neighbours saw Reg or Kathleen walk into Rillington Place. None of the tenants heard any shouting coming from the ground floor flat. And with the police choosing to ignore Tim's claim that Christie done it! I'm telling you, Christy done it! Believing the right man had been executed, there was no surveillance or further investigation into the life of John Reginald Halliday Christie. Why she went with Reg, we shall never know. Maybe being hungry, the lure of a free meal of potato, peas, and carrots was too great. Maybe being cold, a set of second hand clothes was too tempting. Maybe being four months pregnant, he enticed her in with a promise of a cheap but not entirely risk-free abortion. Or maybe being homeless, what she wanted was just a warm bed on a cold night. Having stated that she had assaulted him, Christy would later claim, she wanted me to be intimate with her, and started taking things off. I tried to stop her. She was very repulsive, and I wanted her out of my house. I don't remember what happened. Everything sort of went haywire. But I remember thinking, alright, if ever a woman deserved to die, You do. Being only small, but heavily intoxicated to the point where she could barely stand. Although she was trusting, defenceless, and had a blood alcohol level of 0.24, three times over the drink drive limit, fearing she would fight back, Reg incapacitated her even further. With a semi-conscious, malnourished girl slumped in the deck chair, Having switched off the kitchen stove, opened the side window a crack and removed the square glass jar, with the long rubber hose trailing under her seat, he unplugged the bulldog clip and let the gas drift up. And as the invisible odourless gas rendered her unconscious, as the carbon monoxide in her lungs reached a lethal level, only then did Reg pull a pillowcase over her face And with both hands gripped taut, he strangled her with a black stocking. After that, I believe I made a cup of tea and went to bed. In his many statements, Christie would deny that any sex took place between himself and the drunken woman that he found so repulsive and although sperm was found in her vagina, it's impossible to confirm if the intercourse occurred when she was alive or dead. I got up in the morning, I went into the kitchen, I washed, shaved, and she was still in the dead chair, a pillowcase on her head, and a stocking round her neck. I believe I then made some tea. Having wrapped her body in a flannelette blanket, tied her ankles with a sock, and stripped her body bare of everything except for a white cotton cardigan. As he had done with Ethel, he stuffed a white cotton vest between her legs, like a makeshift nappy. But no one knows why. And then, I pulled away a small cupboard and gained access to the kitchen alcove. I knew it was there because a pipe burst in the frosty weather. I must have put her in there. I don't remember doing it. And there she remained, raped and strangled, curled up in the fetal position, in a dirty, unused alcove in Reg Christie's kitchen. With no missing persons report and no investigation into her disappearance, 24-year-old Kathleen Madeline Maloney, the cruelly orphaned girl, was as forgotten in life as she was in death. Although it's unclear when she was murdered, one thing we know for certain. When the police opened the alcove, they found three bodies, not one. And with Kathleen being in the middle, by the time of her death, Christie had already killed another woman, and there was one more still to come. Once again, John Reginald Halliday Christie had got away with murder, and with two bodies in the back garden, two in a grave one under the floor, two in the alcove, and one executed for his crimes. He believed he had fooled everyone, but something from his past would come back to haunt him. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you enjoyed parts 1-7 to of this 10-part series, Part 8 of The Other Side of 10 Rillington Place continues next Thursday, with an omnibus edition once it's finished. And for any murky milers, stay tuned for chatty-farty burpy-mouth squits after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week, which are One Eye Open and American Slackers.
0: Hello, I'm Steffi, the host of One Eye Open, my very own true crime podcast. I write, research, and produce each episode from my fancy little room here in England. Join me as I delve deeply into mysterious murders and painful punishments. The terrible tales are real, and although dark, I'm sure they'll appeal. I've been described as the Mary Poppins of true crime, but you'll need more than a spoonful of sugar to help these crimes go down. I'd recommend a gin and tonic a large one. If you like your true crime served with ice, lemon, and a touch of class, then come and find me, Steffi, on my podcast One Eye Open. I'll be waiting for you.
1: Hey Slackers, I'm Matt. And I'm Jesse. We host American Slacker, the show that keeps you updated on all of the weirdest news around the globe. Along with what's going on in the world of Xbox, music and movie suggestions, and fun interactive games. Every other week we bring on interesting guests from all walks of life. From filmmakers to musicians, funeral directors, to small business owners, and even Jeff Goldblum. What? No. We never got Goldblum, man. Oh, man can dream, can't he? American Soccer Podcast. New episodes every Wednesday. Available on Spotify, iTunes, and all of your smart devices. Or anywhere else, you know, you might happen to cop a podcast. They're downloading MP3s, not buying an ETH. I'm shutting this shit down. That's it. There you go.
2: Some lovely thank yous this week. Firstly, to Danielle Too Good, who's become a much loved Patreon supporter. So thank you, Danielle. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode, knowing it's not officially released for another couple of days. Ooh, a big thank you to Helen O'Brien who very kindly sent a donation to keep Murder Mile alive, or full of cake. I'm unsure if there's a difference. So thank you, Helen. And it was lovely to meet Murder Mile listeners on a recentish Murder Mile walk. They were Des and Colette Arthur. Thanks for the tunnocks and tea. Very yummy indeed as well as to the king of the ticket refunds, Tom Hughes, with Laura Epsley and, eek, I'm sorry to say, the other lady who was there as well, but I've entirely forgotten your name, but then again I did say that I struggle to remember more than four names, and that's five. Uh, Anyway, thank you so much for the pint. (laughs) If you want to book onto a Murder Mile walk, you can do it through my website. Uh, On it you'll hear loads of stories that you'll never hear on the podcast, I'll show you some familiar sights, we'll probably get accosted by a crack addict, and then, afterwards, you can treat your loved one to a Murder Mile mug, which I can deliver to you on the tour. Mm. how great is that? Don't forget, Valentine's Day is only a few weeks away. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. oh dear lord god right welcome to extra mile everyone oh god that was a tough one why was it a tough one because we've got a really stinky hangover today uh i was out last night it's it's 23rd of december at the moment um a have a our listener and good friend Mr jo- Joseph Barron uh, it was his birthday last night so I headed to South London uh, to Barbie and Joe's to do some, uh, do some celebrating <clears throat> and we did some celebrating and uh, it took me an hour and 15 minutes to get there and it took me three hours to come back via two McDonald's I'm going off to make a coffee uh, and now my head really hurts I've got really bad hangover so I'm going to make a tea which is what I'm doing now and i'm going to do something i've never done murder mile before i'm going to go into my bedroom which means i'm further going to be further away than i am now because i need to go and get some painkillers hang on i'll be back i'm going to my bedroom you still hear me though it's just i'm all the way down here I, i put them in a bag because i'm leaving i'm leaving in about an hour's time because it's christmas and I'm going to go and see my brother and his family. And then I'm going to go and stay with my dad and my stepmom for Christmas. Oh. Which is why I was rush- rushing to get this done today. Rushing to try... Oh, painkillers. Some good old ibuprofen. I was rushing to get this done today. I wanted to get this episode written because I, can- I can only write here where I'm sat, I can't write anywhere else, because it just doesn't feel right, so I can't write in other people's houses, even though people say, oh, come to our house, and you know, you can plug in, it's very nice, but I can't do that, I can't, I need to be in my own environment, so uh, I was trying to get this episode written, and recorded, so then I can edit over Christmas because we're running out of time now, we're running out of time, anyway, this is extra mile, uh, I haven't said the thing ever, I haven't said the thing, Uh so this is extra mile, hang on, hang on, how long was that record, okay, right, I'm trying to make sure I don't do too much, right, okay, Uh this is extra mile, if you've never been on extra mile before, been on extra mile, you can't be on extra mile, what am I talking about, oh, I'm so hungover. um, uh Extra mile, so it's the uh, extra bit at the end of the show. It's not compulsory, you can leave if you want to, not a problem at all. This is where we discuss extra things in the case that I couldn't get into the ex- episode, uh, but also it's just lots of waffle, really. Lots of waffle, me waffling about stuff. I'm gonna um, put my tea bag in to Des and Colette. I'm gonna tr- I'm having one of your Melroses. Oh, posh tea. Edim- Edinburgh's finest quality tea. Mm. All the, the tunics bars have gone. Uh, th- I ate them very quick indeed they've gone Yeah. so I'm going to have the uh, Edinburgh tea today uh, if anyone is listening to this and you, you've got a Murder Mile mug or if anyone anyone was treated to a Murder Mile mug over Christmas uh, I hope you're having your Murder Mile a cup of tea now in a Murder Mile mug I'll raise a toast to you very shortly there we go and today's cake of the day oh these beauties I found these the other day so obviously if you know Cadbury's Roses the, the Christmassy treat that we have over in Britain which is the chocolates wrapped chocolates with the different assorted centres in the in the middle like you have the, the hazelnut one and you have the orange cream which I like, most people don't like, the coffee one the toffee one uh, the strawberry one, do you know all those The Cadbury's Roses or Cadbury's who do the nice cakey bars anyway the c- chocolate coated cake bars have done a Cadbury's Roses cake bar And this one is the the hazelnut one. And I've had... On the back there's a sign that says, May contain nuts. It's a hazelnut cake. I hope it's bloody going to contain nuts. (laughs) What do you mean may? Surely it should say, will contain nuts. Definitely contains nuts. What the f Anyway, I'm going to have that with my tea very shortly. So, uh, uh, So I hope you're all well hope you enjoyed that episode uh i am uh chugging along west of london now i'm out of the city i'm in the kind of the outer bits uh i've moved into mm, essentially a burglar spot but it's all right it's, a bit, it's quite quiet here so I'm, I'm i'm gonna hunker down i'm gonna hunker down for a bit if anyone does break in there's nothing they can steal in this boat there really isn't they'll probably break in and go oh and they'll probably leave me stuff i don't i don't own anything Well, everything i do have i'll be carrying with me anyway it's probably better to mug me really uh, no actually don't don't mug me uh so yeah i, I was going to move today but i can't be bothered it's wet it's rainy i've got a really bad hangover uh, and i'm going to be leaving shortly so uh heading away for christmas yay so this is the 23rd december christmas eve tomorrow um i'll be writing part eight over christmas and editing part seven all good all good um i had my christmas uh, murder mile christmas do the other day i say christmas do it was just me me all by myself on my tod uh, as always because it's only me that runs uh, murder mile so what i did i did my thing so do you know i said that i each week i kind of empty the change out of my pockets and put it in a little pot And then uh, once a year, I take it to like uh, the Coinstar machine at a supermarket where they count it out for you. The machine goes really fast, which is great. Uh, You you pay like 10% for it to do it. But you know what? Everyone says, why didn't you, why didn't you count it yourself and you could have saved yourself £9? And it's like, yeah, but it takes like, an hour of going through horrible change that people have touched and haven't washed their hands, especially after they've had a poo and things like that. It's all covered in crap and then you've got to bag it up and then you've got to take it to the bank and then you've got to wait in line between, behind someone who's an idiot and then, oh, what's the point? Pop it in a Coinstar machine, it takes 30 seconds. you pay, you pay nine quid, but so what? Anyway, normally I get about... Ooh, tea's going to go. Tea's going to go. So normally... Uh, I get about thirty or forty quid out of a year's worth of change, uh, but it overflowed a bit this year, so it's very nice. So I put I, I put it into a big. It ended up enough to go into a big Pringles pot, uh, and then uh, a little a bag as well. I put it in there. And it was eighty-five pounds, eighty-five English pounds. Lovely. So that was very good. So um, so I changed it up. I paid my. Uh, my £9 fee, which is very good. Uh, Oh, there we go, a bit of milk in there, lovely jubbly. Um, And then I treated myself, so I treated myself to a steak, bit of blue cheese, what else was there? Some Moroccan couscous and some triple fried chips. Oh, and some beers as well, but three of them were stolen by someone. I know, bastards, Uh, but that was very nice and because I'm because I'm even though I had 75 pounds in my hand I really did want to spoil myself but I'm not very good at spoiling myself so I actually bought a lot of frugal stuff but that's good that means I only spent like 15 quid which means I've got about 60 quid left Yay! so whew, so that was good uh yeah but um when they changed it over for me they gave me a 50 pound note And if anyone knows British currency, it's like, all of our money is very different. It's like, in America, I think all yours are green, aren't they? And everything looks identical. And you really have to look at the difference between like a five and a a, a ten or whatever. But in Britain, I think it's like the same with other countries. The notes are all very different. So, you know, they're different sizes and the different, I was going to say shapes and different colours. So literally you can go through and like do you know a 20 is like very a five is very blue and a, uh, a 10 is kind of very orangey but the problem is a 50 i was given a 50 and a 50 is bigger than any other note it's a big old bugger it really is big and it's pink as well and the problem is when you pull it out of your wallet a it barely fits into a wallet it kind of peeps out but when you do pull it out like you, you spend a 20 anywhere and everyone's fine with that you pull it out a 50 and everyone thinks you're a drug dealer everyone thinks you're up to something suspicious and it's like you know you just feel really cheap holding a 50 and the do you know you take it to spend it in a shop and most people go we can't change a 50 or like um, you go to spend it and then they, they have to do that security check where they have to check whether it's real and then they get the, the little magic marker out and check whether that works on it as well and then Even worse, normally the cashier has to go. I have to get my supervisor, and the supervisor has to come over, and they get it, and then they hold it up to the light, and so everyone can see you. And it takes like bloody ten minutes. Oh, and and you can't use it in a machine like a Tesco's. The the automatic machines, do you know where you you add up? You don't have to deal with a real person. You just go boop, boop, boop. They don't accept fifties, so you can't use them there. So I'm stuck with a fifty, which is no bad thing. It's nice to have a fifty pound note, but it looks suspicious that was one breath i think anyway it's been a good week for me we are going to do some oh let me have my painkiller oh there it is painkiller cup of tea mm, mm, mm. good tea thanks Des and collect good tea uh so yeah no it's been good i will do uh murder mile information stuff and just lots to say already uh good week for me just to say uh I was going up to see my gran because obviously I do like a monthly trip to go and check that my gran's okay. I don't get a lot of time because it's like six, it's like seven hours to get up there, seven hours to get back. So basically I get an hour with a bit, roughly an hour really, that's all it is. Uh, And I have to check that the house is okay, that, you know, because she she doesn't live there anymore, but I'm still looking after the house. And so it's a a long trip, but it's a three hour delay on the train. And what makes it a good week is uh, I put in a complaint and I've got a hundred percent refund. Yay! Thank you, Virgin. So I got hundred percent refund on my uh, train ticket, and same week I got the uh, seventy-four pounds worth of loose change, which was very good. And because I use, have to use a little generator in order to power my laptop and the podcasting equipment in order to record all this, uh, my 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 one-year-old lap uh, generator broke the other day, which was really annoying. It was spe- spewing out oil everywhere, and I was like, "Oh god, I can't afford like the, another like three hundred quid." a new generator at the moment uh so i sent it off to the, the guys i bought it from uh and they called me back the other day and they said no it, it it's totally broke i was like oh it's gonna cost me a lot of money to get it fixed and they were like it's our fault it's a faulty product uh, we'll give you a brand new replacement no charge thank you very much <gasps> which is very good i think that's because i gave them a five-star review on amazon so yeah that was very good good service good service so thank you to them so that was very good so it's been a good week so far except the two beers which were stolen off my roof but apart from that uh, i'd rather have two stolen beers which i'm hungover anyway so i don't care i really i was glad to see the back of them oh anyway i uh, hope you enjoyed that episode that was uh part seven seven of the uh other side of 10 Rillington Place. Uh, again another another one of these uh, names that you probably never heard of Uh, as i mentioned before uh, quite often in the story you only really hear about reg christie beryl and tim evans geraldine the baby uh, and then sometimes ethel uh, ethel his wife that's normally all you hear but you never really hear hear about ruth first who was the first victim the austrian girl or uh, muriel edie uh who was his colleague at Ultra Electric you never hear about them and now we're going into the final 3 uh which is Kathleen Maloney I won't mention the other the other two names cuz they're going to come up in the later episodes so uh, so next week's and the week after's episode unless you binge in this uh, this series then it'll be in an hour's time or less uh <laughs> Uh, it's very brave if you binge all these. I don't think I could listen to me for more than uh, a minute. I can't listen to my own voice anyway. I hate her. Uh, so, yeah, uh, so um, if you're a purist uh, and you kind of know the story already, you're probably saying to me, hang on, why are you doing Kathleen Maloney's story now? Because she's not the third from last she's the penultimate body but I I deliberately put that in because there, there were certain things that I wanted to tell with this story and uh this was kind of the best way to do it and also because there, there is there's no clear definition of when Kathleen Malone, Maloney died or the next one uh I could actually I'll just say it was Ruth Nelson Ruth Nelson is, is the one that happened before you'll hear about her next week or in an hour's time um Unlike the others where it was clear when they were last seen, Do you know, I've, I've been able to like with all these stories, I've been able to tell you exactly where people were at what date and time and who saw them and when. And it was, it's a very clear linear story, but with Kathleen Maloney, because as I've mentioned throughout her life was so chaotic that, her last known movements are somewhere over a month or somewhere over two months. Do you know when she really died? We really don't know. Uh, But we know that Ruth Nelson and Kathleen Maloney were missing sometime in January 1952. There's more... The dates are more exact with Ruth Nelson. But Kathleen, it isn't. It could be just after Christmas. It could be sometime in January. It could be sometime in February. But the only way that we know that... Ruth Nelson came before Kathleen Maloney is the order of the bodies in the alcove there's three and it's a tight small alcove and basically I will post a picture online eventually so you can see it but literally it's three ladies in in an order and uh Kathleen Maloney is in the middle that's the only reason that we can define that Ruth Nelson was murdered first and then Kathleen Maloney but obviously I needed to I need to um there are things I need to say in this episode and this next episode, which is why I, I've shifted the order around. But to be honest, it makes no difference at all. It, 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 we're still telling the same story. So, for purists out there, yes, I know Ruth Nelson technically is first, but uh, I've I've deliberately told it this way. It doesn't it doesn't take anything away from the story. To, to be honest, when you go through Reg Christie stuff, he believed that uh, if he did murder it, it was October nineteen fifty two which is four months before it actually happened and this is not him saying it years later like he gave he gave that witness statement that we're getting this from he he gave that about eight weeks well six to eight weeks after we reckon the murder probably happened so even on the court documents if you look at the court documents um The the original court documents have Ruth Nelson and Kathleen Maloney both dated as dying in or about the 27th of January. And that's the court documents themselves. And the later court documents are actually different as well. The the dates are different, so there's no real clarification. Uh, The bodies were all decomposed. It was quite cold in there. Uh, They weren't able to give uh, an accurate assessment of exactly how long they'd been there. So really, all we really know is their last known sightings and the order they were found in the alcove um there's no evidence at all that the bodies were, were moved around at all uh, why reg would do it he wouldn't uh, there doesn't seem to be a reason why it literally is you put one in then he put the next one in then he put the next one in so um one thing that was interesting uh in the uh in the court case itself there were things that were allowed and things that were disallowed um now just just to be clear that tim uh, Timothy John Evans was found guilty of murder. I've deliberately left this detail out of these episodes just because it throws it around. But Tim was found guilty of the murder of Geraldine Evans. Tim wasn't found guilty of the murder of Beryl Evans. And that's because they didn't put the evidence forward. It was um, The prosecution felt it was unfair um, to put forward the evidence of uh, Beryl Evans when they were really dealing with the case of Geraldine Evans. So in the end, they actually it, it, the, some of the ev- evidence was put forward, but it was actually a specimen charge in the end, which means um, if Tim is... If you've got multiple murders in a case, it's, it can be a real nightmare if, say, five people are murdered, or in this case, eight people. Um, in this case, if you were to put Christie in court and say, right, we're going to try you for all of these murders, if you try him for every single murder... The problem is there's a chance that he could be found guilty of one, but not the other. Or, you know, he could be found guilty of three, but not five. And, you know, what you kind of want to do for the families is make sure that everything's clearly wrapped up. So they have a specimen charge, which basically says... Prosecution and the defence kind of like a specimen charge because it basically says... If you murdered this one person, then by definition, we are saying that you murdered all of these people because there's a clear link in the evidence. So that's a specimen charge, and it's good for prosecution, it's good for evidence, it's good for uh, defence. Prosecution, love it, because it's very clear, it clears up everything quick, it basically, you, you don't have to try, you wouldn't have to try Christy eight times, you try him once. Um, defence, love it, because if... You're found guilty of the one murder that the prosecution is putting forward. If you're found it, sorry, if you're found innocent of that, you're found innocent of all that all of the cases. So basically you walk free. So it's a win win situation. So this was brought in as a specimen charge. But the uh the uh the defence tried very hard to make sure that the uh evidence of Beryl Evans, uh of her murder was not introduced to this case, but it was. It was. Uh but there were other things that were not introduced into the case as well, which is really fascinating. Um Uh, I'll mention this before I forget it. Uh, The builder's evidence, so obviously we mentioned that there were builders on site rebuilding the outhouse and the bay window outside the front room uh, at the time that Beryl Evans was murdered. Um, The builder's evidence wasn't used in court, which was really odd because, obviously uh, I mentioned earlier on that the builders had left like some slats, some wooden slats in the outhouse that Reg Christie had used uh, to hide uh Beryl and Geraldine's sorry, to, to hide Beryl's body, but not Geraldine's body, because the body was hidden behind the door. Um the builders has actually left some tools in there as well, which they came back to collect on the eleventh. And um, the So the murder happened on the seven, uh eighth, if I remember correctly. Then by this point the bodies should have been in there. Should have been in the the uh in the in the wash house. But they came back to collect their tools on the 11th and they said there was no bodies in there they didn't see anything and they they picked up what they needed to pick up so uh so that proved that tim when tim said you know the bodies were put in there by set date they weren't in there they clearly weren't so wherever they were put whether they were le- left in Mr. Kitchener's room, we don't know, but uh, they definitely weren't in the wash house. But that evidence wasn't used at Tim's trial. It would have been useful as well. Uh, an interesting thing as well is that the judge, what was his name? Mr. Justice? Oh, I can't remember what his name was. I remember that one one of the, the barristers was called Christmas Humphreys. I love that. Uh, the the judge, quite an old doddery man. He actually died just after the case, uh, the Timothy Evans case had finished. He entirely believed that Tim was guilty and he entirely believed that Christy was innocent. Uh, because, do you know, remember that I said that uh, basically the the prosecution... Uh, the, the judge said basically, to the jury you have to make a decision. Do you believe Tim's story or do you believe Christy's story? And that's how you find out. Um, that's how you're going to come to your conclusion. But basically the judge truly believed that uh tim was entirely guilty and you can you can hear it in his in his readings so everything oops everything he's saying he can clearly hear that so uh he wasn't the most impartial judge um a couple of things i left out as well uh it was it's interesting but i i don't know see i might go into the next pe- episode but i'm not too sure how to put it in is the fact that uh the christies were racists I know it's something that's never really brought up, but uh, the, the the period in uh, Ladbroke Grove uh, had kind of changed. So obviously, it was Victorian tenement blocks, and uh, when they were living there in the '30s and '40s, it was kind of very kind. It was kind kind of a very white neighbourhood. But obviously, as the '50s started to come around, we had the Windrush generation, which is uh, obviously post-war a lot of a lot of people dead uh we needed a lot of labor so the government went to everyone uh in Jamaica and they said um, or Jamaica, the West Indies, and they said, look, we need Labour, you are British citizens, if you come over to Britain, uh, we'll treat you very nicely, and we'll give you nice jobs and houses, and la-di-da." which was all bullshit. All the Jamaican people were treated really badly, they were given slum houses, and courtesy of the current British government, many have been deported back to Jamaica, even though they were told that they didn't need passports because they were British citizens, and they were welcome to stay here. Thank you, uh, current British government, you absolute shitbags. I know the real oh, current. Oh, I'm not going to get into it at the moment. Uh, but so the um, 1930s, 1940s were very much is a very much a white neighbourhood. 1950s, it had become a very much a Jamaican neighbourhood, which is why in Notting Hill at the moment, uh you know, for the last couple of decades, this is kind of the home of the Notting Hill Carnival. Carnival. So, uh, Labrick Grove is kind of the real hub of it. It's where all the it all happens. It's a very Jamaican neighbourhood. Uh, so. After the Evanses had left and Mr. Kitchener had passed away, uh, it was uh, the the tenants at 10 Wellington Place were, were almost entirely Jamaican or, or Jamaican men with white women as well. There was uh, that kind of unsettled the Christies a little bit more, and uh, Christ, uh, both Beryl, uh, Beryl Ethel, and Reg Christie were uh, kind of uh, racist. So there was an alleged assault on Ethel Christie by her neighbour. And this happened uh, 16th of April, 1952. Police responded to 10 Rillington Place. Ethel Christie said that Sylvia Edwards, who was in the first floor flat, assaulted her by slamming the street door in her face. Ethel said, this woman wants this front door open and I want it shut. Sylvia's baby was uh, apparently outside in front of the bay windows, uh, which was where there was a vent bricks underneath, do you know, uh, at the bottom of a, uh, most walls you'll see a venti- ventilation bricks, which is, uh, it allows, co- uh, air to come in and out. So it doesn't, so it can kind of dry. It doesn't go all damp. Uh, and it said, uh, that Sylvia threatened her, uh, with a piece of bar used to keep the door open. Um, Sylvia states she did not threaten or assault her. Mrs. Christie had no marks of assault. um, uh, Reg Christie also stated that on the 23rd of June 1951, alleged that the landlord, Charles Brown, who was a Jamaican guy as well, who'd who'd bought the whole tenement block, uh, had threatened to assault him, but there's no evidence of of assault. Obviously, um, there's a lot of mention of that going on. Reg and Ethel really, really, really don't like the the fact that it's... the house is full of jamaicans at the moment and pretty much they blame them for everything in fact in fact reg blames the jamaicans he says their noise and their cur- their curries and things like that uh he said that's the reason for the bad smell in the house actually it wasn't it was because it was because there was a couple of dead bodies in there um so uh obviously reg used to i, I mentioned that Reg reg would have his routine apparently every day he would uh be sprinkling strong disinfectant everywhere so in the in the communal hallway in his front room uh in front of the bay window uh obviously where i said the the were ventilation bricks on on the on the floor and that that was uh coming up just from uh underneath the floorboard so that's where ethel was so the smell of ethel decomposing was coming up through the ventilation bricks and out into rillington place but it's on in front of that bay window that sylvia the jamaican lady on the first floor would put her baby in a pram to give it some fresh air but obviously it wasn't fresh air it was uh ethel's decomposing body um what's this one what's this one? Oh yeah so uh lena louise brown uh, housewife who was married to Beresford Brown. He will pop up again later on. Um, uh, she last saw uh, Ethel Christie on the 12th of December 1952. Uh, IRC. What's IRC? I've written IRC. Oh, JRC, John Ridge John Christie. Uh, Lena said that uh, Christie would sweep the hallway daily and was putting disinfectant on the floor. And she saw him putting bleach down the drains, like neat bleach straight into the drains, into the backyard, outside of the kitchen window. Uh, He said someone had put dirty water down there, which is all bollocks, obviously. Uh, And then Franklin James Stewart uh, said exactly the same. He was there November 51. So this has been going on for ages imagine living in a house for years and knowing that there's bodies rotting everywhere Ugh, horrible um one thing that I've desperately tried to put into this story but I never got a chance to is the fact that the London smogs happened at this time so um literally a week before Ethel Christie died uh, was the infamous London smog? So whenever you see footage of old footage of London, everyone always shows the the smog footage where people can't see, you can't see in front of your face. And this was, if my memory is correct, I think it was something like the sixth till the twelfth of December, nineteen fifty-two. And basically, there had been uh, some weird oh, I got burpees, Sorry about that. Whoa, oh, that was a big burp. Desperate to come out. Uh, there had been uh, obviously a lot of people using. Um, Uh, log fires around that point it was a very cold winter lots of log fires uh, all unregulated you can basically burn whatever you like there was a weird kind of pressure system that that was coming in which basically meant uh, nothing was being shifted away everything kind of hung in the air and then all of a sudden it just went all of the crap basically came down onto london and for the next 6 days no one could see where they were going it was what they called the pea soup because it really did look like pea soup the air was thick and you could you could barely see in front of your nose uh, and in that week that week alone uh, almost 4000 people died because of like respiratory pro- problems and you know, not been able to see where they're going uh, and another another 6000 died over the following months because of uh, issues with their lungs and in total a hundred thousand people were made ill and the air hung with that kind of thickness for um for weeks and weeks uh i've been desperately trying to desperately trying to put that into this episode but i couldn't work it out it's i was going to put it at the start but it just didn't it didn't sit there properly but it's a nice it's a nice detail knowing that reg is out there doing his killings at the same time that there's an even bigger killer out there which is the london smog uh who knows who knows i might put that in a later episode but i doubt it i think i've gone past the point now um another thing that so later on we will get to the point where reg is finally uh collared and everything is wrapped up but years later um when they were trying to work out what reg had done and piece everything together and the, the timothy evans case and all that uh the the braben report um pointed out that Reg Christie's explanation of his gassing technique was not satisfactory. Do you know, because they they said that... um, He he said that with these ladies, uh, he untied the uh, square glass jar which had the fryer's balsam in it, which was the inhalant that they were using, which obviously he used on uh, Muralidi and Beryl Evans. Um, But with these next three, he didn't... uh, As as I think I mentioned before that, you know, in the films, they normally show that he had to kind of he built like a makeshift gas mask to put it over their face so they could breathe in, which kind of makes sense. That is a more logical approach to to gassing these people, because at least even as you see in the film, 10 wheel into place, he holds it in place. And that makes sense. But they're saying that this way, his way of getting the hose, uh, sorry, the long rubber hose from the oven, put it underneath her chair and letting it drift up although it, it would work with uh kathleen maloney because obviously she was intoxicated she was you know semi-conscious by that point anyway and it was in a invisible and uh um odorless gas so she wouldn't know you, you know you wouldn't she would just be drifting off to sleep she'd think oh i'm really tired she wouldn't know that she was uh inhaling carbon monoxide um What they said is that they don't think that this is the way it happened at all because they said, you know, if it's a hose coming out uh, full of gas, even if he's got like the window open a crack, that's still still quite dangerous because he's yes, she's inhaling. But don't forget, it's a small kitchen and he's in the same room. So surely he's overpowering himself as well, unless he's he's got something over his face or his head's out the window. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. When when I first read this, when they said uh, he'd put a pillowcase over her face, I thought he'd put a pillowcase over her face and shoved the pipe underneath it and then tied uh, either the rope or the stocking around her neck. Because that would make sense, because then she's inhaling it direct. I don't know. It's, re- it's very weird, isn't it? And even in here as well, that like um, they say it's hard to tell how... Kathleen Maloney was strangled cuz he said he strangled her with a stocking in his cupboard uh in his cupboard owner oh no, in his pocket he had his strangling rope the length of rope from the deck chair but in the cupboard as well was a knotted tie so even with that it's hard to tell what he used to strangle her with but uh yeah, it's it's, very, it's a confusing case, but uh, I hope you're enjoying it. Whew, that was hard work. Good. I think that's all of my notes. I don't think that's all I've got this week, which is good. Which means I can wrap this up. Uh, I'm going to. I'm all packed up. I'm going to pack up my laptop. Uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go and have a read. I'm going to have a caffeine coffee because I bloody need it this morning. Uh, I'm going to have my tea. Going to finish my tea. Going to finish my cake bar. Look at that cake bar. Oh, I might have another painkiller uh I'm gonna have some sweet and sour chicken and rice which is ready to go. I'll pop that in the oven very shortly I'll pack up the boat and then i'm I'm heading off for Christmas Christmas and hopefully have a couple of days off which would be nice uh do a little bit of editing of um part seven and then start writing part eight. Oh dear Lord and then uh, what i'm thinking uh, I might do at the end uh I'm gonna do an extra mile episode but I'm, I'm thinking about doing a quiz. So that'll be fun. So I think it'll be the last prizes that I'll probably give away, or the last mug prize at least, uh, because I can't give away too many. Um, so what I'll do is I'll do a, a nice quiz and then uh, loads of questions in it. And then uh, there'll be like five winners or whatever. And, uh, yeah, we'll see how that goes. So that, that'll that be one of the extra mile episodes. So that was uh, Murder Mile. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, and I will see you soon. Uh, have a good oh, I'm going to say have a good Christmas, but obviously you've already had your Christmas. I haven't had my Christmas yet. I've, uh, I'm just, I, uh, my Christmas is about to start. Yay. Anyway, wish you all a good time. Uh, Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Bye. Hold
1: up. What was that?